Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. My story started 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, and I didn't say anything. Hmm. So if I don't say something now, when will I say it? And who else has to be victimized right. if I don't share it? And if we don't join in this movement to hold people accountable, and it's not like to burn everything down. It's right. literally to say that we are here on behalf of those who are suffering. And I think it shows, you know, in the type of things that you produce and the reactions to them, it's just a stark contrast between the attitude of being an advocate for someone Hmm. and just vitriolic defense of an idea Hmm. that is hurting people. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Shelly Cordia here on the show with me today. Uh, Shelly, can you just introduce yourself to my audience and let them know about your introduction to the IFU movement? My name is Shelly Snow Cordia. I am an author and a story coach, beauty consultant. I have a career that I absolutely adore, but I've spent the last few years kind of trying to bury all online evidence. (laughs) (laughs) that um, my husband and I were actually sent from a mission board, the Fundamental Baptist Missions International. So that was the mission board that did not start out under Jack Hiles, but um, before he died, I think it was probably the year after we joined. So that would have been 1998. um, He kind of took it under the First Baptist Church of Hammond Ministries. Mm -hmm. And so we left for the field of Romania in 1999. Um, But as far as the introduction that I had into it, I was basically born into it. I'm not sure if my parents' church was like, founded as an IFB plant, but I do know that they were, you know, more and more active in the movement from the mid sixties on. Yeah. Okay. 
Wow. So you were, you were a second generation to this world. Um, your yeah, parents spent yeah. a good chunk of their life in it. Um, so what was your initial experience like with it? Was it a pretty positive one at least? I mean, I know in retrospect, we can look back and see things that maybe we didn't recognize as negative. Um, but at the time, did you feel like, hey, this is the best place I could possibly be right now? This feels like home? Or was it something from early on you kind of graded against that that world? Yeah, well, I think that I had a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, I didn't know any different. So um, it was normal to me. And at the same time, I did see the movement kind of morph into what it is, what we know what it is today. So uh, just for example, when I was two or three, I remember having like pictures. Well, I see the pictures now of me when I was like two or three years old wearing a little pair of jeans. But by the time I was four, you know, that was kind of like unacceptable to even have your little girls wear those kind of clothes or, um, you know, by the time I was 13 and able to go to youth conference, we were wearing like gauchos. I mean, that was a thing in the 80s. That's what people were anyway. But like, you know, this, it was acceptable. But by the time I turned 14, it was like, we have to have pattern culottes and things. So um, the movement was, you know, part of my everyday life, because I didn't know better. We went to church, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, my dad volunteered all the time. We went to soul winning, we were involved in all of the things, you know how it is, (laughs) all the pressures to volunteer and uh, be there every time the door is open. And uh, so that was a way of life for me. But at the same time, watching it morph, it became um, this kind of permission to live a double life, in my opinion, Um, because we quickly began to see things taken away from us that were at one, one time normal, that were vilified later. And so there's just a disconnect as a child. Um, you know, by the time I was four years old, my parents had moved us from St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I'm from and where I live now. But um, they had moved us from here to Hammond, Indiana, so that my dad could study under Jack Kyle's. And, um, you know, that's when you started to see kind of this real indoctrination and this real movement to vilify the outsiders and really become one of the insiders. So that's, there's kind of, you know, a benefit to that because you're on the inside and you feel good about being like involved in this cause. But then you see how the things that you like, like watching TV um, (laughs) are suddenly evil. So you hide it. Yeah. So I feel like that's, that's part of why I felt compelled to really reach out to you and come on here and tell the story is because I find it so fascinating that, well, first of all, let me thank you (laughs) because I love the work that you're doing and I know it comes at a cost. When I started speaking out about my story and started sharing, it just is hard at times because you have people who just want to defend um, Mm. what they believe and their actions. And I, and I totally understand that. And I love that you've created this place where people from both sides can tell their story and no matter where they are in the journey, they're able to come and, you know, just tell what their perception is of what happened. Hmm. Um, you know, so, so thank you for that. Um, but it's, it's interesting how, you know, when I, when we left St. Louis, Missouri, we were involved in a small church, 
you know, I mean like two or 300 people. So I guess it would be a big IFB church at this point, (laughs) but you know, we were involved in that. And then we went to this organization that was in its heyday. So this would have been 1979, 1980. And, um, you know, I just remember the thousands and thousands of people in the streets for the parades or, um, you know, there at pastor school and youth conferences. And it was just kind of a buzz of excitement around it because we were saving the world. (laughs) And, um, you know, so there's so many good things that are wrapped up in it. But by the time um, I was five years old, I was actually sexually molested. Um, And my brother and I both had that experience. Um, It was not by a leader in the church. It was a young man in the um, youth ministry there. Hmm. Um, And so that by the time that happened, we already knew how to keep secrets, you know, Hmm. like there's, there's an atmosphere of, you know, you can't gossip, you can't, you know, say this or that you can't, you know, do this thing that is, you know, good, but now bad. And so you, you hide so much from your parents. Like, I'll just give you an example. I remember when we were kids, we were able to watch TV still. And my parents were pretty lenient. I know places differ, right, with pastors who think that, you know, Disney should be boycotted and others who think it's fine, you know, that whole thing. So um, we were still allowed to watch television. And um, I remember the popular shows were like Wonder Woman and the Dukes of Hazzard. (laughs) Tells you my age. (laughs) I have kids in their 20s. But, you know, so we, we were able to like watch that for a while and then we weren't and we would hear sermons because they would suddenly be, you know, just talking about the Daisy Dukes and the, you know, outfits that Wonder Woman wears from the pulpit. Right. And you just feel like, oh, well that, you know, that's dirty, but it's super fun to play. So we would play who would be the villain and which girl got to be Wonder Woman for the day, you know, and pick our superheroes. And then we would hide that we did that. Uh, So it's not unnatural then to understand that you're in a culture that creates this really separated dualistic life. Um, And that's why I think it's important that you're doing the stories is because I've heard, you know, on the podcast lately that there's an argument about it being systemic issue Mm -hmm. and it's, if it perpetuates the re-victimization of survivors and allows perpetrators to not come to justice, then it's a systemic issue. And I think it's important to just tell our stories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot there. I mean, first of all, I had to look up what gauchos were, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so that was a big learning thing for me. Um, but no, but yeah. You know I, what culottes are. <laughs> I do know culottes. Yeah. So, but, um, but no, I, I, yeah, it's, it's interesting hearing because everything you're saying makes sense. And I think this is where, where I struggle to see these places independent is like, I can resonate with pretty much everything that you shared from your experience being in Indiana. And I was in Southern California. Um, but one of the things you hit on that I think is really 
important. And, and I've just started kind of noticing this. Um, I think it was my interview with Rachel that we talked about like moving goalposts of like, what's okay. And that's what I, that's what I feel is consistent in almost every IFB church I'm in is like, once you get to a point where you, you do meet one set of standards, they create a whole new set of rules. So that way you're always breaking something and have to constantly be improving it. And yes, in life, are we always improving? Probably, you know, like that's a good thing. Sure. But like you said, like watching TV, like a movie that was okay last week gets preached about at a revival service and it's not okay the next week or music that was okay one week or the other side, which I, it was confusing for me growing up was like, there were things that were so ardently preached against that as the pastors, you know, kids were allowed to do it, it became okay for us, you know? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of that just moving around of like, what is okay? What's not. And I watched Dukes of Hazzard all the time growing up. So that doesn't, that doesn't date you, but maybe that dates me, I guess. But, but um, yeah, I grew up watching the A-Team, Dukes of Hazzard, like all of the cool 70 shows. Cause my mom, that was like one area we never went super fundy on was like movies and shows. So I'm glad oh, about good. that. So, yeah, um, nice. but, um, but yeah, so, so, I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned some of that stuff, like, and at the end of the day, I mean, we can look back and say like, okay, there's a problem there, but not being able to watch a certain show or things maybe isn't the worst thing in the world. What, what was the first thing that happened where it really started splintering your view of like, oh, this isn't a safe religious bubble that I thought I was in there. It's a little bit more controlling than maybe it should be. Well, um, I think my brother had a lot to do with it and he, um, was kind of like, uh, he's very curious. And I think, I think we both have that, but, um, he is a lot more like independent, I guess. And so I always really just wanted to make everybody happy Mm. (laughs) and, um, just kind of watching the way that he would be treated. And, you know, you're right. Like it, it seems innocuous, that you're not allowed to watch this TV show or you're not allowed to go to this place and to do this thing. And I've come to the point in my life where I really appreciate like what I was shielded from, what I was protected from, you know, some of the hurts that I could have suffered in the world. And, you know, I can attribute some of that to my upbringing. But uh, as you create this atmosphere where everything is so scary that it might be wrong tomorrow. Hmm. (laughs) Um, That's where it seems to just be this breeding ground for hurt. So my brother would like rebel. And so would I, my mom would say that I was more of like the silent rebel. Um, I would just be like, sure, I'm going to do that. And then they would never know, you know, some of the Hmm. stuff that I would do, but my brother would be like, well, you have to tell me why you have to explain that. Um, and just, he was treated with more and more hostility, hmm. um, I would say. And not that we didn't have love in our home and not that there wasn't, you know, some wonderful and beautiful memories that my parents would go out of their way to create for us. Um, but there was always this message that you're screw up and you better get in line or, or else. And eventually I'll get, I guess I'll just you know, skip forward with my story. My brother, um, my dad and my brother got into it at one point. I think I was probably eight or nine. So my brother would have been nine or 10. And, um, you know, my dad was like, well, if you can't follow the rules then you've got to leave the house. And he packed a duffel bag. My brother packed a duffel bag. My dad watched him walk out the door. Now, you know, looking back as an adult, I don't think that that was, 
my dad intended to leave him because he basically let him walk a mile down the road and picked him up. But um, again, something that seems so like innocent or tough love ish was severely traumatic to both of us Hmm. because it showed us that our parents were willing to literally forego a relationship with us if we would not bend to the rules. Um, And, you know, again, I don't fault them. I I fault a system um, and maybe even a society. That's, that's why I think it's important that we are talking about this, that you're doing what you're doing is because sure we've evolved as a society and we've learned. So let's all just get past this. We can not employ these traumatizing tactics to help children understand that we as parents are here to protect them. And some of these rules are here for their good instead of, you know, just piling on layers of guilt and frustration. And ultimately um, my brother did leave home when he was 17. So Mm. that shifted my life completely. I think Um, we, I was by that time a little more vocal. Um, I was you know, sneaking out my mom, probably if she's listening to this, sorry, mom, if you don't know some of this, but (laughs) um, I would sneak out, I would, you know, hide jeans, I would wear like these big, full long skirts. And I would hide pants under them and just like slip the skirt off when I I got out or um, I sneaked out to rock concerts, music was the big thing in my life. I never quite conformed in that area. And that's what I would constantly get in trouble with. But again, you know, there are instances where I was brought in front of my family and well, my mom and dad, um, they got, they found a notebook that I had had at school and, um, I had written just like band names or song lyrics. I don't even remember, but whatever it was, it was something to do with music. And they were like, you know, we found this, you're becoming a slut and a whore. And this is, you know, what evil may befall you if you don't turn from your wicked ways. And, um, those were messages that were loud and clear because Mm -hmm. once my brother ran away from home, um, the one thing I didn't want was to be treated like he was. Yeah. And so I fell in line pretty quickly after that. Um, and I tried to stop sneaking out to go to things. Not that I <laughs> didn't ever again, but like, yeah. Um, yeah, it did, it did shift the course of my life for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm curious just to backtrack just a little bit. I know you had mentioned yeah. when you and, you and your brother both had a shared experience at five where someone in the church you know, molested both of you. Um, That's a, that's a very, I mean, that's a very young age to, I mean, comprehend what happened. Um, And then it's also a very formative age. Like, and so did you, did the two of you realize at the time what had happened or was it something that, you know, was it something that happened? It was addressed by like family who found out and then you moved on and then it kind of, manifest itself later like what how did that affect because I have to assume happening at that age where you're right at that kind of kindergarten age you're getting ready to like you're kind of that's your formative memories most definitely I do think that um you know our lives just would have been very different um and like I said it was kind of like I don't think we ever really talked about it um I knew that it was happening um Mm. And that 
because the boy left me and went into the other room with my brother. Mm. And so I don't think I knew here, but I sensed here that um, it was happening to my brother. So it was not anything we ever spoke about. And uh, he, my brother was extremely protective of me um, and just the sweetest guy you'll ever know. (laughs) Um, Except for when it came to the relationship with my parents, I think he blamed them a lot and and he didn't know what to do with that feeling of anger. Mm. And um, for me, I just really became um, quiet and express myself artistically. And I mean, fortunately that was, you know, appreciated in my family and, you know, given my personality, I was like, well, I'll just do more of this stuff. I'll just, you know, make music for the church and I'll do these things for the church and like get the, you know, stamp of approval. Um, and I kind of played the game and was, elevated and my brother was nonconformist and he was ostracized. And ultimately, you know, it did kind of break up my relationship with him um, for a little while and not, not from any kind of like, um, you know, anger or issues that, that we couldn't handle, but it was more of like, we're not playing the same game right now. And so what happened was when I turned 13, no, 14, excuse me. I was at the Bill Rice Ranch. If anybody remembers, shout out to Bill Rice Ranch. Um, and there was a pastor preaching, no idea, but like, I don't know who it was, but it's kind of like the Tony Hudson type, just screaming and um, talking about how the dirty horrors of our generation, um, you know, equating it to what women wear and what women can say and just, you know, all the typical that you hear. And I realized, I think in that moment for the first time that I was that girl, according to what he was saying, I went to a leader that I trusted a woman in our church. And I told her like, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Um, This is what happened to me. And, you know, I just feel like a piece of trash. Like, am I ever going to be accepted in this culture? The only place I've ever known. And her first reaction, which is why I think it's important that I want to share my story now, was to go to the pastor. And so I had to retell the story to my pastor because of the protocol in the IFB is the first place you go is a man in leadership. And so I was extremely uncomfortable and we went you know, to the chapel late at night in the dark and just us three there. And I shared my story again. And so from then, you know, we went home, he called my parents and said, you know, Hey, meet us, you know, both of you need to come and pick your kids up at the church. When we get home, you know, there's just something I need to to discuss with you. And so, you know, I was brought into an office, I was sat down and I was asked to share my story with my parents for the first time. Again, just a traumatic experience. Um, after confiding in somebody I trusted and, you know, I'm not sitting here with any kind of, you know, hate or regret toward her. Um, but it's, it's what we do. It was the practices of the IFB that, you know, they don't think about how we are treating a victim 
Um, they just follow protocol. And so um, thankfully, my parents um, kind of scooped me up and told me that everything was going to be fine. They, you know, my mom asked me if I wanted to press charges. We were completely unsure about the you know, statute of limitations and all the things. And it was the first time I'd spoken about it since I was five. So I wasn't quite ready <laughs> to really say more about it. And so um, my brother came to me, I think, because of course, rumor, I didn't talk to him about it. Rumor, you know, just goes around in the IFA church. So now everyone knows that this is what happened to poor little Shelly. And um, so he came to me and asked me not to share his story. Um, and from then on, we were able to actually speak more and more about it. Um, but when I decided to go to Hiles Anderson after he ran away, um, we lost contact for a few years. Yeah. So that's how basically all that play- played out. Yeah. No, that's why I wanted to definitely go back to that as I was curious um, because, you know, I, I've mentioned on the show before, like, and my, my situation versus so many stories. And I know it's, you shouldn't compare traumas because I, I, I was talking to one of the guests we had on um, who was a trauma therapist. And I just shared like a little bit of mine and I was like, it's not that big deal compared to everyone. She's like, well, don't do that. Um, she's like, it's everybody's affects them their own way. But um, I was probably first grade, second grade. Um, I always get fuzzy on like what exact year. I want to say it was like first, second grade. And, um, and there was a, there was a guy that we picked up for church who like touched me, but that was really, I ended up getting away from him and like, it didn't go further than that. Um, but even just that was super scary and traumatizing. And I told my parents that night, um, but looking back now, I don't think I explained what happened clearly enough for them to know that's me giving all full benefit of the doubt. And like, based on my conversation that that's what they believed and I take their word for it. But, um, but in my mind, I did tell them enough. And so for the next, you know, however many years, like up till, I mean, literally like last year, I'm sitting there going like, why did the, why did nothing ever happen with that? Cause I told them. And so I'm sitting there going like, I don't want to bring this up because when is a good time to talk about this? And, you know, but I'm, I'm sitting there with this, what you said about your brother, like I have all these emotions of no one cared enough to do anything. No one thought it was a big enough deal. People just kind of left me to deal with it myself. And then when I bring it up to my mom, she's like, I didn't realize that happened. And I'm like, I told mm-hmm. you. And, and so then I'm sitting there like, you know, Oh, well, I never even communicated it. So it's, it's such a, it is how people respond, even if it's not their fault, but how people respond in those first moments can change how you view everything for a really long period of time. Um, And it's, it was, it was like really weird because like what I laid out was like something to her. Like if I had said, Oh, someone was mean to me or someone made a Mm. mean face to me, like, versus like me actually explaining what happened, which I think if I had at the time knowing my mom would have been a much different reaction. But, um, but yeah, I was just curious because like that's something, it wasn't always at the forefront of my mind, but it was something that everything, and when it came to like finding out about abuse in the in the movement and, um, you know, knowing like, hey, nobody cares, there's a 
there's a predator leading our music right now. You know, like yeah. stuff, stuff like that would always reopen that and make me just, it would just build to that idea of like, nobody cares. Nobody's doing anything. This is just how things operate, um, which turned out to be unfortunately pretty right of the movement as a whole. Um, but yeah, and like even in my situation, the the only person um, or people my were my parents who mm-hmm. asked like, you know, hey, what about this person? Yeah. You know, what do we need to do? Um, to, you know, get you peace, justice, whatever it might be. But every other leader treated it as if there was an issue with me that they needed to fix. And Hmm. so as somebody who has been victimized, it really is just re-traumatizing to to think that, oh, well, now I have to like fix myself Mm -hmm. instead of thinking, you know, I just, I want to be heard i i just need to figure out what actually is happening and and they want to put me through some kind of counseling to you know reclaim my purity like yeah you know stupid stuff like that is said and you really that hurt for me because i was so young and because it was limited exposure i had probably three encounters with that person and so um you know i I don't know, you know, other than like, I, I have some memory of it and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have this deep seated like hurt from it that I feel like I hold on to. What is more hurtful in my situation, at least, is the fact that it was over and over and over again, right. something that was my fault. At, yeah. at least that's how I was made to feel. So, right. Yeah. And when you say they wanted to counsel or there was an issue with you, was mm-hmm. it, were they coming at it more from, you know, oh, you need to get over this. You shouldn't be bitter about it. Was it more of, you know, hey, you're at fault too? Because I know that's common. But um, I and, don't. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say I don't think that they would say that. I hope they wouldn't say that, considering the age at which it happened. But stranger things have happened. Right. Um, I mean, the fact that I mean, one thing, the fact that we equate purity with the fact that we that whole subject so odd, but the fact that we would, that someone would make a claim that a five-year-old can lose their purity because of something that happens to them without any possibility of them ever consenting to it is insane. Yes. (laughs) So I think that nothing was ever overtly said as far as I had guilt in it. It was just communicated to me that I was now tainted by it, Mm. Um, you know, simply because the the purity culture, excuse me, is so strong in the IFB. And when you are dealing with, you know, this, I mean, even if it's molestation, I guess they still equate it with the act. And it's so, oh, I don't know. (laughs) There's such a disconnect you know between sexuality and being molested Mm. that if there's nobody professional to help you through some of these you know feelings and things especially when this is happening at such a young age it can just be mind-numbing and so I'll give you an example too so like I said I decided to kind of keep the peace and go off to Hiles Anderson College and you know that's stuff that I've dealt with 
you know, in therapy as well is my, um, so I left right after the scandal. I was in high school when, um, Jack Hiles was on hard copy and all that. And I remember my parents saying, you know, like they just couldn't believe that people were attacking him like this. And, um, after, you know, learning the history now and understanding the like real evidence that was coming out around that time, it's, you know, I've had to reconcile the fact that like my parents sent me up there (laughs) and there I went. Um, and when that happened, so my dad studied there from the time I was four to the time I was six years old. And then we moved back to St. Louis, um, where I lived until, um, I went back to college. And by the time I went, uh, oh no, sorry. I was four and I, we came back when I was 10. That's what it was. So it was about six years. And, um, so I went to, you know, the, conferences, um, at youth conference and things like that. So I had been there a couple of times, but it really wasn't until I went to college and started working in the uh, Bible club ministry right there in Hammond that I just had this overload and I started having panic attacks and flashbacks and a couple of the girls, um, who I had kind of reconnected with because our parents had gone to college at the same time and we had come back together. Um, they noticed that there was something off. I had been in the infirmary a few times with strep throat. I had, you know, just gotten myself into such a shape that, um, you know, one of the girls was like, you know, tell me what's going on. And, and I confided in her. What's interesting is though, I found that this was not uncommon during that time. So this would have been uh, right around the same time too, that um, David Hiles, that whole scandal went down with him and he was kind of sent away. And he, so he was the youth pastor. Um, and apparently there was a group of boys and this is alleged. I, I cannot prove this, but there was a group of boys within the youth uh, ministry who kind of had this um, competition going on to see how many girls that they could, um, you know, take their virginity or who even knows or molest. I have no idea, but um, there was a ring of, boys, according to this, you know, a couple of the girls that I went to college with who are doing the same things. And so I've heard that as well. I've had a couple of people that have brought that up enough. I don't have anything I can, I mean, I don't think you ever could have something to point to as evidence, but I've heard enough stories from enough unconnected people that it seems fairly credible that something like that was happening. Yeah. So, um, one after the other, you know, they shared their stories too, and they were the same as mine. And um, so finally, because, you know, the, I continued to go into Hammond on Saturdays because that was our Bible club area. And I continued to have these like, you know, just panic attacks and um, flashbacks and uh, hyperventilating. I think I passed out once. I actually um, was partially paralyzed during my years there. Um, because of some of the issues that were going on. And I believe now after years of treatment and things that it was um, psychologically based, but um, anyway, so I ended up going to a leader and she told me that I needed to, I didn't trust men because of what happened to me. So I needed to go to Jack Scott and have counseling. And so I stood in his line. I'm not sure if anybody's told this (laughs) story, like, you know, of what the practices were, at least back then you would stand in line. They had counseling hours. You would stand in line and they would like let people in 10 minutes at a time. Cause of course, you know, that's gonna, (laughs) 
fix things. Um, so I did. I stood in that line and I told him why I was there, who told me to go there. And it was the most bizarre thing one of the most bizarre things that ever happened to me while I was there. And I really respected Jack Scott. I had been infatuated with him and his preaching. Um, he was traveling the country at that time. He was, you know, his office was in this like little dungeon, basically a uh, hallway. So he, he was obviously the leader's son-in-law, but he was also just a teacher. So it felt like, Oh, you know, like he's trustworthy. And, um, some of the things I see now that he did in that meeting were just grooming tactics. Um, so, for example, he asked me, you know, because I was shaking when I was in there. He's like, oh, you know, what's going on? So he put his hands on me, which, I mean, this is the IFB world. This is like, you know, a guy that's related to the top dog. You put your hands on somebody. And I mean, it wasn't, you know, I think it was on my shoulders or maybe it was on my knees, actually, because I was standing. We were standing face to face or sitting face to face. And he's like, hey, I see that you're shaking. Why don't you start by just telling me a little bit then about your dad? Because he knew that my um, dad had gone to college there. He got out a yearbook. I showed him my dad's picture. And then I told him why I was sent there. And so one of the practices that he had me do was, uh, you know, first he said, well, you know, you're, you're a beautiful girl. Okay, red flag number one <laughs> for those of you listening. Um, and it made it just kind of reinforced that whole idea of, oh, you're putting this on me again. And then he said, what you need to do is you need to learn that you can trust men again. So I'm going to say you're beautiful and you have to say thank you. And so we re repeated that exercise back and forth a few times. And then I, I can't remember exactly how the conversation went. It's been a good many years now, but I left that space thinking that was 0% helpful and I will never go back, but I didn't lose respect for him as a man. I did not recognize it as a grooming tactic. Um, you know, he, actually really favored my husband. So I can tell you a little bit of that story quickly. So my husband is Romanian and he grew up under communism, never had exposure to the IFB, but he did know English growing up. His dad was a border guard between Hungary and Romania. And so they had a decent lifestyle under communism. Um, because of their status. And he was able to learn English from the books that his dad had and stuff. And so he translated for people who would come over as soon as communism fell in 89. And so randomly, um, somebody from Hals Anderson or associated with Hals Anderson came over and George, my husband was their translator. And Long story short, they offered to pay his way to Hiles Anderson. He was actually the first foreign student right mm -hmm. after they obtained their, um, is it I-29, I think, status, where it's something like that. Um, but that means that you can accept foreign students. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, you know, went there and in the rule book, <laughs> which I never would have known because, again, I've lived a life of like we lie about stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, I signed the rule book. Sure. I have no idea what all was in it. I did actually learn to read it though. 
um, after a couple of years because I realized they kept adding stuff. But anyway, um, so there was a rule in the rule book that said you're not allowed to read uh, Fundamental Seduction. Is that the one that Boyle Glover did? Right. Yeah. Fundamental Seduction. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it was like spelled out in there. You're not allowed to read that. So my husband being the guy that he is went to the library and checked out the book, which kudos to the person who, cause as an author, I know how that works. Like, unless you're right. a really well-known author, you go to your library and you donate a book and you say, I want this in this library. Yeah. So kudos to you, <laughs> whoever <laughs> did that, but he checked out the book and read it and he called his parents and he's like, I gotta leave this place. And they said, um, you know, like, of course they have no idea what's going on. Never been right. exposed to IFB. And, um, they were like, you know, you made an agreement, stick it out for the year, etc." Well, of course I met him in our first year there and didn't realize how quickly I fell in love with him until later. But, um, you know, he was just interested in shipping out and I, the level of indoctrination and scare tactics that I experienced in my first year there just scared me so much (laughs) that I was afraid to leave. Like I, lest I be eaten by the wiles of the devil or something, you know? So I ended up um, trying out for tour group and um, went on tour for the college in 1995. Um, My husband came back and um, came back for like another semester or something, took a class or two, and then we got married. Um, and like I said, Jack Scott just took a liking to him. He, my husband's an amazing guy, smart, sharp, all the things. And um, he ended up giving my husband a one-year degree to basically claim him <laughs> that he's a Hiles graduate. But um, yeah, so like the the amount of I don't know, like I said, just kind of indoctrination and the scare tactics they use is is pretty crazy. But once you are you can benefit from the culture itself. Like, you know, I was bumped up into the category, you know, right. I think somebody has mentioned here on your podcast that there it's a like a, it's a caste system. So I may have may have started out pretty low, but you know, once they can use you like, oh, well, you can be on our tour group and you're elevated further and further. Um, Jack Hiles actually brought my husband's parents over from Romania to honor them at a pastor school. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you, you, you turn a blind eye or like you don't even really see it because while I was there, at Hiles Anderson, some of my friends were being abused. And even as, even though I was still walking through my own like trauma with trying to figure out how to deal with my past, I didn't even see that there were girls being abused by some of the staff members Mm. there that I was close friends with. Right. So it's, it's just a strange, strange world. And again, I'll bring it back to the fact that we have a system and the system is set up to hide what we deem, you know, bad or unspeakable. And I don't, I'm not only talking about the IFB, even in our culture, which again is why I think your work is so important until we normalize the fact that we can talk about these things without shame Mm -hmm. as a survivor, then we are just laying more ground for the perpetrators 
to, you know, keep going and continue to abuse. Um, and it needs to stop. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, there's, yeah, there's definitely a societal stigma against talking about this stuff. I think it's gone. I mean, thankfully, um, you know, with things like the me too movement and things, it's allowed that conversation to happen. Um, so, and, and I think within the church, it's, you know, as in a lot of areas, the church is often a couple, a decade or so behind on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And um, which feels like it should be the opposite. I feel like it should be leading the charge and that kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, I think it's definitely important, but what, so I think you're absolutely right. When you're part of the, the in crowd in that world, you don't, it really is a have and have not kind of world. So like, you don't notice that there is something that, that's going on to the other people. Like your experience is good. You accept that for what it is. And you don't, that's our default human position is like, if our life's good, why mess with anything? It seems okay. Um, what was, what was the moment that you realized, you know, you guys are missionaries. You're like as IFB as you can get. And we went down that road too. Like we did the missions route for a little bit. Yeah. What, what was the thing where you said like, okay, we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing. We're at the height of our IFB, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, IFB fervor. Um, what is it that made you guys step away to the point where now you're like, I don't even really like that people know that we did that. Like it's kind of an embarrassing <laughs> period of our life. Yeah. Well, I'll never be embarrassed about actually being, you know, part of the Romanian culture and our time. Sure. There. I love it. But um, yeah, to bury the IFB links has been important to me personally. <laughs> yeah. Um, so honestly, like I said, my husband was never bought in and he, you know, kind of placated me for a while uh, because I, you know, mm. just operated out of fear for so long. But there was a clean break when we left for the mission field in 1999. Um, I had no more exposure. You know, Facebook was, was it a thing? I don't even think it was yet. I don't know. At least not open to regular people. It well, might have been on college campuses by then, but. What year? 99. Oh, no, it would. Yeah. Facebook was yeah. like, oh, seven. I think it's pretty recent, actually. Okay. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, so I don't even think we had that. And um, so I had no exposure to IFB cultures. There's no IFB people. I mean, there might be, but I don't know about them, you know, and very few in Europe. So, um, right. Now that was, you said that they're going to be sending tons of missionaries I know, next that's year. true. Okay. There <laughs> are, there are There's IFB tons. People. We're stacked. We're good. <laughs> there weren't any near us. Sure. Um, except actually there was like, um, that we found out about later, but anyway, um, initially when we went, like I said, clean break and I just, I was able to experience a culture that had a very, um, broad view of faith. And my husband grew up in, uh, actually the largest Baptist church in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just, I saw life for the first time unfiltered. And I began to really unpack a lot of stuff those first few years. Um, and I think in 2003, three or four, I, you know, thought I am suffering here and it was literally homesickness, culture shock, whatever it was. Um, and I thought, well, I need to go back to this, um, women's spectacular. So Mm. I took my daughter, she was quite young, maybe six. Um, and so 
we went matching little dresses and all. And, you know, I had already like worn pants in public over there and stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give it the real dedicated try. Um, and so when I went to that conference, I sat there and there, it was so far removed from anything that I was dealing with emotionally, spiritually. I, I can't even explain <laughs> how hit in the face I was of like, this is not for me. No. And so I left and it still took me a few years to kind of like just unravel so many layers. Um, and we came back, we never took a furlough. Um, cause you know, my husband being Romanian, we didn't like, you know, we were fully immersed in the culture. Yeah. My kids are Romanian. And so they're, you know, the only time we needed to come back was for money. And I was not comfortable asking for money. And because my husband was also connected with many other believers, many other like denominations and stuff, our support, even though it went through um, the FBMI mission board was not from not, not all from uh, fundamental Baptist churches. Got so, it. Um, you know, I just, at one point, I think that would have been in 2007, our last, or eight, 2008, maybe. Uh, no, it was 2007. Uh, we went back to First Baptist Church Hammond um, and my husband spoke at the, like the six o'clock hour or something where, where they have question and answers. And um, I looked at him and I said, don't ever bring me back here. Like, I can't do it. I can't pretend anymore. And um, mm. that was the real falling away of like, I'm just, I'm out. Like, don't, yeah. like, you can't count on me for any of it. <laughs> yeah. There is something when you have a little bit of distance between it. I was mm. just talking to someone about this yesterday. Like, when I first left, I would feel these pings of like, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Like, I feel like I should be back or or like it wasn't as bad as I'm thinking it was, or it wasn't as extreme. And then I would go back and I'd be like, this is a little extreme, but then you, you get into it a little bit. You're like, it's not that bad. You know what I mean? And, and it's true. There are some good people in that world. And you cling, like for me, when I would go visit these churches, I'd find the good people that I knew and go hang out with them. But then you start like really diving into like, okay, what are they actually preaching or what are they actually teaching? And you start going like, this is super toxic. So you'd back away a little bit more. And now, like, I haven't stepped foot in an IFB church in a couple of years now, but like when I when I go in and like, or when I see a clip, like the I, yesterday I was watching a clip, and I was like, man, when you're out for long enough, you watch like a two minute clip for one of these services, you're like, how did I ever sit there and feel like pumped up by this? Like, how did I ever feel like this was? the 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 way the only way and yeah. um yeah in the mission field is a total like that's a wrecking ball to like most of the things that you're taught to believe growing up um you know like like all the stuff you learn about music and then you're sitting in a, a village church in india where they're playing a drum and you're like it doesn't seem like they're like cr- committing this egregious sin against god that people are getting right. expelled out of bible colleges for um, when so you yes. see the the graciousness of the mm-hmm. outside world compared to just the animosity 
in the preaching, at least, of the IFB. And even in my own self, um, you know, I can remember looking at talking to a girl who was not dressed, you know, with, you know, according to the rules or whatnot and, and thinking, man, how much did I belittle her in my mind? Mm -hmm. How devoid of grace could I be by, you know, just acting as if I had the moral high ground to talk to her about her dress standards or yeah, it's just, like you said, it does blow the door wide open yeah. to see, you know, and honestly, it was nice to be on the mission field because I think we had one other than the uh, mission board founder. Um, I think we had one pastor visit us in the 15 years we were there hmm. uh, from the IFB. So um, they did send questionnaires and we lost support at times for not, you know, answering correctly. Yeah. So, right. But yeah, it's 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 nice to be on the other side of it and and to understand that um, grace is everything, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's for me the big shift was like I just I used to view people as transactions and it was like mm-hmm. can I convert like will I have this conversation if there's a chance of me converting them to my way of thinking and you know while obviously I still share about my faith because it's important to me I can genuinely be happy talking to someone about like, Oh, that's great. You got a raise and like, or that's great that this happened. And not every question is leading to me getting to their quote unquote sin issue or, you know what I mean? Like that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, so, so you now have really like, I'll have a link to your article in the show notes. Like you, you are really, you know, being an advocate and trying to like your writing, you're sharing your perspectives, you're trying to raise awareness about even things that you didn't personally experience, but are, you know, tangential to what you experienced. Um, you know, what was the shift from going from like, I'm kind of like, don't want to talk about this to that's definitely what I'm going to do now is, is share about this and try to help other people. Yeah. Well, um, you know, after I finished my trilogy, I knew that, well, it was actually before I began working on writing this story and it was just a pull that I continued to feel. Um, But as I started speaking out about it, I encountered a lot of resistance, you know, just within family and within. So my, my husband is still in ministry. He is the missions pastor at um, a sizable church here in St. Charles, Missouri. And so, um, you know, just like, Oh, well, what will be affected? What will people say? All, all the things right. that, you know, go through your head. Even when I published my first book, um, you know, there's some mysticism in it. It's like a time travel fantasy. So mm-hmm. I was just like, um, a lot of my audience is still, you know, I have been thinking like, what do I like? Okay, I'm just gonna put it out there. Um, you know, you just kind of always prepare yourself for, right. <laughs> for that. But um, it was a couple of years ago and I was like, I just have to start getting this story out. But honestly, Eric, it wasn't until I saw your podcast and I mm. was thinking, and I think you mentioned your age on it. And my oldest child is 23. And I was just smacked in the face with the fact that this isn't part of my past or the past. It's part of my past, mm-hmm. but it's still continuing. Right. And if not now, when, and it's funny because 
that was a like really popular sermon when I was growing right. up. I, I have these like little things in my head that I kind of use as jabs, even in my writing. <laughs> They'll be like sermon titles that I'm, it's not like I'm using them against them, but you know, it is, it's that whole idea of like, if we don't do this now, when will it be done? Because my story started 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago. And I didn't say anything. Hmm. So if I don't say something now, when will I say it? And who else has to be victimized right. if I don't share it? And if we don't join in this movement to hold people accountable, and it's not like to burn everything down. It's right. literally to say that we are here on behalf of those who are suffering um, yeah. And I think it shows, you know, in the type of things that you produce and um, that you post and the reactions to them, it's just a stark contrast between the attitude of being an advocate for someone hmm. and just vitriolic defense of an idea hmm. that is hurting people. Right. Yeah. Right. No, that's awesome. And yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, there couldn't be enough voices talking about it. And that's one thing I hope is, you know, I mean, even doing the show, like I know that there's, there's probably people thinking like, why do you think you're the one that's going to like <laughs> say something? And like, literally one of the reasons I did is just because I didn't feel like there was someone sharing it the way that I wanted to share it. And I want everybody, everybody brings a unique voice perspective. And so I want authors and podcasters and YouTubers, like it's not a competition thing. Like I just want to see, you, you mentioned your article, like Amanda Householder with the troubled teen industry. Yeah. Like yeah. she's tackling that in a way that I could never because of my lack of knowledge about it. Um, and so. And that was a huge thing for me too. Sorry to right. interrupt you. No, you're fine. Because she's from my home state. Yeah, Missouri. And, and there are. I researched it at one point, but there are at least 13 um, homes, not IFB, but religiously affiliated, which means that they are non-regulated right. in, in the Missouri, in yeah. Missouri. And so like that kind of stuff, like that's mind blowing to me <laughs> that right. it's, it's today. Again, it was just that factor of these kids, like, you know, I, like I said, I see you guys as kids almost because I, my kids are 23, 20 and 19. Like I, you know, am fortunate enough to have taken them from this culture and put them in another one. So for the most part, they have no connection. Yeah. You know, they, they're fascinated by my stories now that I'm coming out with them. Mm. But um, yeah. So like just thinking that, oh, we can protect the children, let's do it and let's do it together. So yeah. no, that's yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's, that's awesome. And I, I look forward to seeing, I know you, you've just started really like really vocalizing this stuff. So I'm curious to see how that develops. And I know um, I'm sure that it's influenced some of your writing in your books. Um, yeah. I, it, it has to, I mean, your life experiences do impact, but I'm, I'm definitely curious to see, you know, as an author where that takes you. Cause I feel like it's going to definitely keep, growing as a blog and, and things like that. And I feel like 
the more that you do it, I know from experience doing this, like the more you do it, the more avenues you start realizing there are to, to share it. But, um, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on and for sharing. And I know it's, it doesn't get easier. Like whenever you start, it's, it's, it's really hard. And I know there's probably a lot of people that are not happy you're doing what you're doing. Um, but I know there's also, I mean, there's thousands of people that are listening to the show that are going to back what you're doing and support you. Um, and I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see where this goes and, and see another voice coming out. So. Thank you. Thank you. There, there has been so much support already. And um, I do, I am writing a memoir. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I did self-publish my trilogy and then I had a children's book come out this year. Yeah. Um, so I, I would love to seek uh, publication for okay. this next book so I can, and I, you know, I have friends in the industry, so hopefully that will come about um, just so it'll free me up to not have to like continue to make money and I can get yeah. an advance and like just write for six months. That would be amazing. Um, so that's what's next for me. And I will be talking about it more on the blog and doing Great. more interviews like this. So thank you again for yeah. your work. And um, I just, I'm so grateful. And I do want to give a shout out to my brother as well. Um, he has been an advocate for men of sexual hmm. abuse for years um, he has an organization with his friend, Kim Lee. They're both actors. Um, you've probably seen my brother in something because he's <laughs> been a guest actor on a few shows. <laughs> but um, they have a, an organization called Be Your Own Superhero. So shout out to them. Um, he's been speaking out for years about that. And I know as a guy, that's way different. Right. Um, so yeah, I just plan on continuing um, this advocacy work um, both with him and with as many people as I can. No, that's awesome. Yeah. I'll definitely link out to his organization as well. And I'm glad he's, I'm glad he's raising awareness there because there's tons and tons of people I know that are super hesitant to reach. Talk about societal stigma, like men coming forward is a huge, huge issue um, right now. But yeah, thanks for, for doing that. As you get, you know, some progress in the book, like, we should definitely do this again and talk through it. And yeah. um, I'll definitely be sharing any articles that come out and things like that and keeping a close eye on, on what you're doing. So, yeah. but uh, yeah, thank you so much for jumping on. Okay. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.